Clause 7, Salary, Clause 8, Oath or Affirmation. The President shall, at stated times, receive for his services, a compensation, which shall neither be increased nor diminished during the period for which he shall have been elected, and he shall not receive within that period any other emolument from the United States, or any of them. The President's salary, currently $400,000 a year, must remain constant throughout the President's term. The President may not receive other compensation from either the federal or any state government. Clause 8, Oath or Affirmation. Before he enter on the execution of his office, he shall take the following oath or affirmation, I do solemnly swear, or affirm, that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States, and will to the best of my ability, preserve, protect and defend the Constitution of the United States. According to the Joint Congressional Committee on Presidential Inaugurations, George Washington added the word so help me God during his first inaugural, though this has been disputed. There are no contemporaneous sources for this fact, and no eyewitness sources to Washington's first inaugural mention the phrase at all, including those that transcribed what he said for his oath. Also, the president-elect's name is typically added after the I, for example, I, George Washington, do. Normally, the Chief Justice of the United States administers the oath. It is sometimes asserted that the oath bestows upon the president the power to do whatever is necessary to preserve, protect and defend the Constitution. Andrew Jackson, while vetoing an act for the renewal of the Charter of the National Bank, implied that the president could refuse to execute statutes that he felt were unconstitutional. In suspending the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus, President Abraham Lincoln claimed that he acted according to the oath. His action was challenged in court and overturned by the U.S. Circuit Court in Maryland, led by Chief Justice Roger B. Taney, in Ex Parte Merriman, 1861. Lincoln ignored Taney's order. Finally, Andrew Johnson's counsel referred to the theory during his impeachment trial. Otherwise, few have seriously asserted that the oath augments the president's powers. The vice president also has an oath of office, but it is not mandated by the Constitution and is prescribed by statute. Currently, the vice presidential oath is the same as that for members of Congress and members of the cabinet. I do solemnly swear, or affirm, that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I take this obligation freely, without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion, and that I will well and faithfully discharge the duties of the office on which I am about to enter. So help me God. Section 2. Presidential Powers. In the landmark decision Nixon v. General Services Administration, 1977, Justice William Rehnquist, afterwards the Chief Justice, declared in his dissent it would require far more of a discourse than could profitably be included in an opinion such as this to fully describe the preeminent position that the President of the United States occupies with respect to our Republic. Suffice it to say that the President is made the sole repository of the executive powers of the United States, and the powers entrusted to him as well as the duties imposed upon him are awesome indeed. Unlike the modern constitutions of many other countries, which specify when and how a state of emergency may be declared and which rights may be suspended, the U.S. Constitution itself includes no comprehensive separate regime for emergencies. Some legal scholars according to the Atlantic believe however that the Constitution gives the President inherent emergency powers by making him commander-in-chief of the armed forces, or by vesting in him abroad, undefined executive power. Congress has delegated at least 136 distinct statutory emergency powers to the President, each available upon the declaration of an emergency. Only 13 of these require a declaration from Congress, the remaining 123 are assumed by an executive declaration with no further congressional input. Congressionally authorized emergency presidential powers are sweeping and dramatic and range from seizing control of the internet to declaring martial law. 
This led the magazine The Atlantic to observe that the misuse of emergency powers is a standard gambit among leaders attempting to consolidate power, because, in the words of Justice Robert H. Jackson's dissent in Korematsu v. United States, 1944, the decision that upheld the internment of Japanese Americans, each emergency power lies about like a loaded weapon, ready for the hand of any authority that can bring forward a plausible claim of an urgent need. Clause 1, Command of Military, Opinions of Cabinet Secretaries, Pardons. The President shall be Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy of the United States, and of the Militia of the several states, when called into the actual service of the United States, he may require the opinion, in writing, of the Principal Officer in each of the Executive Departments, upon any subject relating to the duties of their respective offices, and he shall have power to grant reprieves and pardons for offenses against the United States, except in cases of impeachment. The Constitution vests the President with executive power. That power reaches its zenith when wielded to protect national security, and federal courts in the United States must pay proper deference to the executive in assessing the threats that face the nation. The president is the military's commander-in-chief, however Article 1 gives Congress and not the president the exclusive right to declare war. Nevertheless, the power of the president to initiate hostilities has been subject to question. According to historian Thomas Woods, ever since the Korean War, Article 2, Section 2 has been interpreted the President has the power to initiate hostilities without consulting Congress but what the framers actually meant by that clause was that once war has been declared, it was the President's responsibility as Commander-in-Chief to direct the war. Alexander Hamilton spoke in such terms when he said that the President, although lacking the power to declare war, would have the direction of war when authorized or begun. The President acting alone was authorized only to repel sudden attacks, Hence the decision to withhold from him only the power to declare war, not to make war, which was thought to be a necessary emergency power in case of foreign attack. Since World War II, every major military action has been technically a U.S. military operation or a U.N. police action, which are deemed legally legitimate by Congress and various United Nations resolutions because of decisions such as the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution or the resolution of the Congress providing authorization for use of force in Iraq. The President may require the principal officer of any executive department to tender his advice in writing. While the Constitution nowhere requires a formal cabinet, it does authorize the President to seek advice from the principal officers of the various departments as he, or she, performs their official duties. George Washington found it prudent to organize his principal officers into a cabinet, and it has been part of the executive branch structure ever since. Presidents have used cabinet meetings of selected principal officers but to widely differing extents and for different purposes. Secretary of State William H. Seward advocated the use of a parliamentary-style cabinet government to President Abraham Lincoln, but was rebuffed. Later, Woodrow Wilson advocated use of a parliamentary-style cabinet while he was a professor, but as president he would have none of it in his administration. In recent administrations, cabinets have grown to include key White House staff in addition to department and agency heads. President Ronald Reagan formed seven sub-cabinet councils to review many policy issues, and subsequent presidents have followed that practice. Pardons and reprieves may be granted by the president, except in cases of impeachment. There is currently no universally accepted interpretation of the impeachment exception. Some argue that the president simply cannot use a pardon to stop an officeholder from being impeached, while others suggest that crimes underlying an impeachment cannot be pardoned by the president. As ruled by the Supreme Court in United States v. Wilson, 1833, the pardon could be rejected by the convict. Then, in Burdick v. United States, 1915, the court specifically said, circumstances may be made to bring innocence under the penalties of the law. If so brought, escape by confession of guilt implied in the acceptance of a pardon may be rejected, preferring to be the victim of the law rather than its acknowledged transgressor, 
preferring death even to such certain infamy. Commutations, reduction in prison sentence, unlike pardons, restoration of civil rights after prison sentence had been served, may not be refused. In Vittel v. Pervich, 1927, the subject of the commutation did not want to accept life in prison but wanted the death penalty restored. The Supreme Court said, pardon in our days is not a private act of grace from an individual happening to possess power. It is a part of the constitutional scheme. When granted it is the determination of the ultimate authority that the public welfare will be better served by inflicting less than what the judgment fixed. Clause 2, Advice and Consent Clause. The President exercises the powers in the Advice and Consent Clause with the advice and consent of the Senate. He shall have power, by and with the advice and consent of the Senate, to make treaties, provided two-thirds of the Senators present concur, and he shall nominate, and by and with the advice and consent of the Senate, shall appoint ambassadors, other public ministers and consuls, judges of the Supreme Court, and all other officers of the United States, whose appointments are not herein otherwise provided for, and which shall be established by law, but the Congress may by law vest the appointment of such inferior officers, as they think proper, in the President alone, in the courts of law, or in the heads of departments. Treaties. The President may enter the United States into treaties, but they are not effective until approved by a two-thirds vote in the Senate. In Article 2 however, the Constitution is not very explicit about the termination of treaties. The first abrogation of a treaty occurred in 1798, when Congress passed a law terminating a Treaty of Alliance, 1778. In 1854, however, President Franklin Pierce terminated a treaty with Denmark with the consent of the Senate alone. A Senate committee ruled that it was correct procedure for the President to terminate treaties after being authorized by the Senate alone, and not the entire Congress. President Pierce's successors, however, returned to the former procedure of obtaining authorization from both houses. Some presidents have claimed to themselves the exclusive power of terminating treaties. The first unambiguous case of a president terminating a treaty without authorization, granted prior to or after the termination, occurred when Jimmy Carter terminated a treaty with the Republic of China. For the first time, judicial determination was sought, but the effort proved futile, the Supreme Court could not find a majority agreeing on any particular principle, and therefore instructed the trial court to dismiss the case. Appointments. The President may also appoint judges, ambassadors, consuls, ministers and other officers with the advice and consent of the Senate. By law, however, Congress may allow the President, heads of executive departments, or the courts to appoint inferior officials. The Senate has a long-standing practice of permitting motions to reconsider previous decisions. In 1931, the Senate granted advice and consent to the President on the appointment of a member of the Federal Power Commission. The officer in question was sworn in, but the Senate, under the guise of a motion to reconsider, rescinded the advice and consent. In the writ of quo warranto proceedings that followed, the Supreme Court ruled that the Senate was not permitted to rescind advice and consent after the officer had been installed. After the Senate grants advice and consent, However, the President is under no compulsion to commission the officer. It has not been settled whether the President has the prerogative to withhold a commission after having signed it. This issue played a large part in the seminal court case Marbury v. Madison. At times the President has asserted the power to remove individuals from office. Congress has often explicitly limited the President's power to remove. During the Reconstruction era, Congress passed the Tenure of Office Act, purportedly preventing Andrew Johnson from removing without the advice and consent of the Senate, anyone appointed with the advice and consent of the Senate. President Johnson ignored the act, and was later impeached and acquitted. The constitutionality of the act was not immediately settled. In Myers v. United States, the Supreme Court held that Congress could not limit the President's power to remove an executive officer, 
the Postmaster General, but in Humphrey's executor v. United States, it upheld Congress's authority to restrict the President's power to remove officers of the Federal Trade Commission. An administrative body cannot in any proper sense be characterized as an arm or an eye of the executive. Congress may repeal the legislation that authorizes the appointment of an executive officer. But it cannot reserve for itself the power of an officer charged with the execution of the laws except by impeachment. The text of this podcast is sourced from the Wikipedia Foundation under a Creative Commons attribution, share alike license. The written text has been altered for voice presentation. To view the modified and original text versions visit thelegalpages.com. The content of this podcast is presented for informational purposes only, and is not intended to be legal or professional advice. The Wikipedia Foundation is not affiliated with this podcast.